When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Pritch- Alex Pritchard. Alex Pritchard is an associate professor of international political history in the Department of Politics at Exeter University. He's a leading authority on anarch- um, anarchist political thought and history with a particular interest in how anarchist theorize war, peace, and global order. And today he's here to talk with us about a great book that he published with Oxford University Press last year called Anarchism, a very short introduction. Alex, thank you very much for accepting this invitation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, Can you briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your area of expertise and what made you interested in the history of anarchism and how this book came about? Mm, Sure. So... um... I mean, it's a long and uh, mostly fortuitous and accidental story that gets most people into PhDs, but mine was sort of, it's a long, I won't go into the details, okay? But um, but essentially, I discovered that Proudhon had written all of this stuff on international politics, and uh, I'd done a couple of degrees in international relations, uh, and I, nobody had ever told me about his writings. And so I, I thought, hey, well, there's a PhD in this. But the problem that I immediately faced was that not only did nobody know that the work existed, but when... I was asked to sort of make sense of this work. I was asked to make sense of it in a contemporary context, which made it very difficult for me to make sense of Proudhon, not only because most people's preconceptions of Proudhon's writings were antiquated and outdated, but also because, you know, he wasn't dealing with the problems that we're dealing with today. There are similarities, but because nobody knew anything about Proudhon, the prior or the first thing to do is just to tell everybody what Proudhon had said try and bring that to people. But immediately, you know, when I started reading Proudhon's writings, not only I, the international relations context is one problem, the other was that most people's preconceptions of Proudhon were completely wrong, and trying to fit Proudhon into anarchism was really difficult because of the way most people thought about anarchism. Uh, and, and much of the literature about anarchism in the, sort of the, you know, the end of the, uh, the last millennium was sort of written by people who'd never been an anarchist, known any anarchists, um, certainly didn't write from a position, particularly in political philosophy, political theory, international relations. These were scholars who were, 
really interested in the sort of the abstract, you know, you know, can you justify states, what's obligations on, rather than saying this is what anarchists argued in their time. And so what we did was myself, Ruth Kinner, I was doing my PhD at the time, we established the political studies network, the anarchist studies network for the political the Anarchist Studies Network for the Political Studies Association. And um, what we did was we gathered together a group at that time, about 20, 30 scholars, but, you know, subsequently we've grown. There's a, there's a sort of a, should we say, a, a branch in the United States, and there's about two, 300 people now working, broadly speaking, in anarchist studies. And what I what we've done collectively is sort of rewrite the history of anarchism in really important ways. And so, you know, that enabled me to say what I wanted to say about Proudhon in a way that was consistent with the historical record that enabled us to think about anarchism in much more broad terms. But it also enabled me then to say something substantive about Proudhon in the context of international relations. And then the opportunity emerged. Oxford University Press approached me to uh, to write this book. And of course, I felt like I was in a really good position to do that because I'd done all of this sort of contextual work done all of this work to gather together the collaborative effort to bring together all those scholars and we really felt or I felt that I had a really you know a new a new sense of what anarchism was and that it really needed updating and so this book I mean in one respect it's an updating in another it's very much in the vein of the previous edition so um, Colin Ward wrote the original uh, very short introduction that was published in 2004 uh, he died very soon thereafter, and the book itself is actually was actually quite dated when it was published. So, if you think about all of the sort of the anti-globalization movement, you know, re-emergence of anarchism around uh, the turn of the millennium, you know, barely any of that features, and of course, nothing subsequently. So, what we what what this book does is it tries to bring together all of that that research that's been going on over the last twenty years. Uh, and try and update that book, but in a way that's consistent with what Colin Ward was trying to do with his edition, which is to say what I was trying to do was, you know, show anarchism as a lived tradition, not just by anarchists, but by those people who've been abandoned by states, who are persecuted by states, who are, you know, hounded, those people who've had to remove themselves in order to survive. Those are the people I think Colin Ward would argue are living what he called anarchy in action. And what the book tries to do is tries to not only show that sort of undercurrent of anarchic, anti-statist or outside state behavior, but also to try and um, try and show what the anarchists actually did, right? To try and bring that ideology to the forefront and to say that this is a coherent body of thought and practice that spans 150 years of modern global history uh, and to try and show you know the coherence of it uh, and its importance for for the consolidation of the contemporary world order and as i say in the, the preface to the book you know this this derives from a course that i've been teaching at exeter for the last sort of 10 12 years where called anarchism and world ordering and what i try to do is show how the anarchists were really pivotal in the establishment of the 20th, 21st century, 20th and 21st century. You know, the anarchism has become part of our culture and it's really, you know, we don't recognize that as 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 quickly as we ought to perhaps. That was a, that was a fascinating uh, history. <laughs> and uh, incidentally, I was talking to this friend about, I mean, I was actually creating a podcast and I was talking about, he was talking about Proudhon. But anyway, let's, uh, as you mentioned, this is a, 
very difficult term to define. There are a lot of misconceptions about anarchism. It's just associated with mere chaos. Can you, I know it could be very difficult, but can you give us a broad definition of, 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 of anarchism, what it is and maybe what it is not in a way debunking the myths around anarchism? Mm, sure. So I, I've got a very particular take on this, but I, I think it's a good one. Um, my view is that um, anarchism is primarily a, a political philosophy that is predicated on the denial of any final point of authority. Okay, so by final, I mean, you know, a supreme, the sovereign, you know, a, 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 a supreme court, whatever it happens to be. Anarchists deny the legitimacy of all institutions or people that present themselves as a final point of authority, the supreme authority in any particular area. Now, if, if that's what you are doing, then you, it's beholden upon you then to find other ways of establishing authority within your community, right? And so what anarchists do is they look to mutual aid, horizontality, equality, uh, prefiguration, and so on, all things I can explain more in more detail later, perhaps, but but they they it's incumbent upon them to, to find those alternatives. So, I mean, one of the things I like saying, but, you know, probably get me into a lot of trouble, is that anarchists are not anti-authority. Anarchists are not anti-hierarchy. Anarchists are not anti-power. They are they are quite happy with all of those things as long as they have a direct say in their exercise. So anarchists are quite happy, for example, you know, they're pro-domination if it's BDSM and everyone's into it, right? And they're pro-power as long as they can establish, you know, use that power to establish anarchist communities. And they're pro-hierarchies as long as that's functional. So does a hierarchy perform a function that is valuable to that community. And if it does, and it's consensual, and it's changeable, and so on, then there's really nothing wrong with it. it the problems with each of those things are when they become um, arbitrary, when power becomes something that is exercised without oversight, where hierarchy is established simply by, let's say, historical norm or moral norms, or you know, by law. Those things are, are arbitrary insofar as they're not changeable. They're not con we didn't consciously accept them. We weren't asked about them. So what the anarchists are trying to do in denying a final point of authority is find ways of building authority into communities in ways that are not final, but are and as a consequence must be participatory, mutualist, and so on. So my definition of anarchism then is it, it because I start from a different place. It's not about denying all leaders or denying this and that and the other. It's about accepting a particular form of society exists already, as in there really isn't a final point of authority. It doesn't matter where you look. There's always somebody else who thinks they've got more authority or somebody else who's challenging it. There is no final point of authority. As a consequence, we already live in something like an anarchy. The question is, how ought we to organize in the absence of a final point of authority, whether that is a god or a, a state or whatever it happens to be. And the anarchists have got an ideology that help us do that. So unlike every other ideology, they don't rely on formal authority structures that are unquestionable outside of, let's say, five-year democratic cycles. And they demand, therefore, that everybody participates in society to make the best of it together. And that is really what we've been trying to do in our second project, which is to look at how anarchists constitutionalize. And we've been doing that now for the last five or six years, but we don't really, I don't really do that in the very short introduction. I touch on it at the end in the chapter on federalism and world order, but, but really this is, you know, that what I'm doing with Ruth is a, is a separate book project. Mm. 
and uh, we'll talk about some of the issues you raised. Um, but I'm also interested in, as a part of this whole debunking, anarchism is also sometimes associated with terrorism. Mm. Can you briefly discuss the history of anarchist terrorism as well as uh, pacifism? Mm. That's also an uh, aspect of anarchism that is less talked about. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, anarchism emerged in sort of the 1850s, and uh, but it was pretty much global, pretty much immediately. Um, and it anarchist movements piggybacked, if you like, or drove forward to, in some instances, revolutionary processes. Don't forget, this was the high point of European empires. Most of the world was colonized by five or six key powers in Europe. And so most of the liberation struggles at that time were were were, were insurrectionary, they were violent. You know, they precipitated ultimately two world wars, right? Um, but by the sort of the 1880s, uh, there were three or four, let's say, centers of, anarch of anarchist uh, terrorism. And Russia was one, France was the other, and then, of course, later in the United States, but also in places like Spain, across, uh, across Eastern Europe, too. Now, the, the anarchist terrorists, quote-unquote, emerged out of non-terrorists. So there was a, there's a, a, a general philosophy of propaganda by the deed. This was a Bakunin pioneered this, or at least made, made, made most sense of it. So interestingly, Bakunin was part of the Italian Carbonari movement, who were a sort of revolutionary Republican, uh, very highly secretive movement that were around in the 1860s. And he took that ethos of sort of clandestine insurrection into his anarchism, which emerged sort of five, ten years later. And the aim of this propaganda by the deed was to awaken people's consciousness, their their understanding of the inequalities and the structures of power that they face through action. Now, that action didn't have to be terroristic, of course, but the dominant narrative for insurrectionary uh, revolutionary projects at those time was that it was militant, it was violent. And that also translated then into revolutionary movements across Europe and, and North America and elsewhere, uh, also South Asia, I should say, and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. But uh, the terrorists took a very particular line on this. So people like Nechayev, some of the uh, the French terrorists and so on. These were individuals who believed that they're, 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 the only way in which we could rid ourselves of the structures of power was to kill those who were in power. And so there was the targeting of McKinley, and he was killed in America, of course, and there was the... Uh, the President Carnot was assassinated in France. There's, you know, there's, broadly speaking, according to um, Richard uh, Jensen, about a thousand murders by anarchist terrorists over a period of about 50 years, so from the 1880s through to the 1920s, 30s. And most of those, of those, most can't be attributed to what we would call anarchists. So one of the really interesting things about this sort of anarchist period is not that it was conducted by anarchists, but that it was so convincingly told as a story of anarchist terrorism. So our th of our thousand, most of the explicitly anarchist um, terrorist attacks were reprisals against state violence that had happened previously, for example, in the Haymarket uh, uh, massacre uh, and, uh, and others. And these were uh, escalated very quickly, but were in incidents that were not driven necessarily by um, by a desire to kill individuals, but by a retaliatory reprisal. There were others, of course, that were led by um, by agents provocateurs, so police activists who were working with 
uh, anarchists and encouraging them to bomb targets. And others were, were even less successful. So the, the Galeonistas are, are an interesting bunch. So they were some of the few that, you know, bear in mind that they're just developing dynamite, trying to figure out how it works, trying to consolidate it in a, in a bomb that could be chucked. Um, and they managed to kill more of their own than they did of their targets, right? So the history of this anarchist terrorism is completely out of proportion to the actual extent of anarchist terrorism at that period, and often completely devoid of any connection to reality. But the fact of the matter is that the anarchists completely failed to achieve their uh, their goals through that method. In fact, I'd argue they probably had a stronger hand in creating the nation state through those acts of terrorism than they would have otherwise. So through this act of terrorism, and again, Richard Johnson is the key authority on this, through these acts of terrorism, these acts of terrorism were used by nation states to justify things like Interpol, uh, to justify passports, to justify um, the FBI, uh, the establishment of you know paramilitary forces, uh, the consolidation of uh, security guards, the protection units around heads of state, you know the divorce of the heads of state from society. All of that, and then the consolidation of the boundaries of the state, was arguably in large part a consequence of anarchist terrorism. Or the myth of anarchist terrorism, should we say. And that's really significant. So, you know, how we think about that today, you know, you can see it echoing all over the place. So, you know, eco-terrorism, Donald Trump always argues that the anarchists are eco-terrorists or, you know, Antifa or whatever. The myth of that terrorism is really valuable to states because they can they can leverage it to impose really draconian uh, policies. And if you watch V for Vendetta, I mean, that's a classic example. You know, it's that that is the story of V for Vendetta. And you, 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 you also, uh, you just, you just said that it kind of emerged in the 1850s. How did anarchism react to the rise of nation states? Mm. So, I mean, the, the, I mean, I have to say they, they, they're doing the same thing today, right? So, if you look at yeah. Ukraine, um, for example, Ukraine is currently being consolidated through this post-imperial uh, conflict. Right where you know they're trying to sort divorce themselves from Russia, they're trying they're consolidating themselves through an act of war, and it's anarchists have got have having a really hard time figuring out where they stand in relation to whether people should fight for their freedom within the context of a nation state or not. Now in the 1850s there was it was a similar argument. It wasn't just one country, of course. It was pretty much the whole world. So again, this is an imperial order. Um, up until about 1919, there were only really 14 nation states in the world. And then after the League of Nations was founded, that was expanded again. But, you know, there were so few nation states. And so everybody wanted one because that was the, it was, at the time, everyone thought that it was only through linking a people with a political order that you could have freedom, right? It was taken from Rousseau. And in one respect, the anarchists agreed, right? Because, you know, you need to be a community and it's only if you self-organize and do that together that you can be free. They disagreed that the nation state was the way forward because they said that, you know, if you adopt the instruments of the master, that you will eventually be subjected to them. And the, the state is that instrument. So in spite of the progress made through the French Revolution, it didn't fundamentally undermine the class structures, the wealth structures of that society. And the anarchists were making that argument all the way through that period. They were saying, you know, if you, if you want freedom, you can't do it through the institutions of the nation state. Nevertheless. 
they were more than willing to support insurrectionary nationalist movements. And on the whole, I would say that the, up until about the 1880s, the relationship between insurrectionary anarchists and nationalist movements were actually very symbiotic. Think about Mexico or or China, particularly China up until the 1920s, actually, or um, Japan or elsewhere. There were, you know, th these were these were an insurrectionary movements, anti-imperial insurrectionary movements that were nationalistic, in an attempt to bring power to the people. And anarchists agreed with that. But then, as that movement emerged and as that history unfolded, anarchists started getting shot. So, of course, as soon as the the consolidation of power uh, had taken place. The anarchists are saying, right, okay, now you've had your revolution. Uh, let's see how we can pass power back to the people. And of course, then it was like, oh, well, do you know what? I quite like this uh, this cushy number I've got here. And they just started shooting the anarchists. And of course, the 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 the, the case in point is the Russian Revolution, right? The Russian Revolution led by, in large part, um, these sort of anti-statist Soviets, the the um, the Kronstadt Rebellion being just one of them, but also later the uh, the Vista fighting against Stalin in Ukraine. You know these these were movements that were fighting for the liberation of their peoples, who were effectively shot by the revolutionaries that they were trying to support. Mao is another classic example. Somebody who started off as an anarchist and then decided just to shoot anyone that didn't agree with the line of the. Uh, of the Communist Party as he set it up. So, you know, these that narrative, I mean, the narrative I'm giving is an, is a sort of a, a summary encapsulation of the sorts of uh, dynamics that really cemented the contemporary world order. So, and we're still dealing with that today, and there isn't really a clear answer to it. Mm. We'll, we'll talk about um, Russian anarchism in a little while, but can you tell us about classical anarchism and... Uh... The failures of French Revolution. That's a very interesting part of the book that you discuss. So, yeah, so anarchism emerges out of the failure of the French Revolution, right? And it, I mean, it depends what you mean by failure, of course. But the the key fact for for the anarchists was that it it, it didn't deliver on this promise of liberty, fraternity, equality. Um, by the eighteen fifties, of course, there was a coup d'état, and Napoleon's nephew had taken over. This was. You know, he was the sort of Donald Trump of his period. He was resorting to referenda to cement his populist rule. He was appealing to conservative values to cement what he called social projects and so on. You know, this is, you know, it is a classic populist era. And the anarchists, of course, are incensed by it. And But there is something about that revolutionary movement that was incredibly valuable. So things like secularism, things like uh, the emergence of positive science, things like uh, the 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 secularization of law. So those these were really important republican initiatives that sort of sort of disempowered the king, and in disempowering the king, who felt, of course, that he was the final point of authority. You know, God, king, that was it. By doing that, of course, everybody had to secularize their modes of political organization. And if you're not beholden to a king or a or a god or whatever, you have to do it yourselves. And so the anarchists are saying, well, that's exactly what we want to do. And so they took that ethos of Republican balancing, dividing powers into a much broader, deeper account of power as such. So it wasn't just about whether you should be an individual in a state and that the laws should be there. It's about we should all be radical participators in the laws that affect our lives. And that's not a national project. That is a communal project. That's a familial project. That's a you know that's a, a project that we should be in, undertaking in our workplaces. That we should be undertaking uh, everywhere. 
said it would democratize everything was the placard that we saw in Occupy Wall Street. I mean, that's the ethos that was established by the Paris Commune in 1871, and it had been percolating for a good 15, 20 years before that. So, you know, it's about taking the insights and the secularization of the, of politics from the French Revolution and expanding that throughout modern society. And it was hugely, hugely, hugely influential. I mean, the anarchists changed so much over that period of about 100 years, you know, because that Marxism didn't really exist Social democracy wasn't really a thing until the 20th century. Uh, and by that time, the anarchists had been around for 50, 60 years. So, you know, this was a, this was the sort of lingua franca of the, um, you know, excuse the pun. This was the lingua franca of the radical left right up until the Russian revolution, if not beyond. Uh, I think it's a perfect segue to the next question, which is Russian uh, anarchism and also Peter uh, Kropotkin, because he's the guy to whom usually... Uh, anarchism is associated to. And earlier in the conversation, when you were talking about the definitions of anarchism, you mentioned mutual aid, which is an idea affiliated with him. Would be great if you could talk about that as well. Mm. So this is the, this is, I mean, I'm basically repeating work that my uh, my colleague and mentor, Ruth Kinner, has done on Kropotkin, but, but you know, yeah. Kropotkin's <laughs> mutual, mutual Aid was one of the first books I read, and it was hugely impressive, you know. And I think the key thing is that, you know, Russia... You got. I think it's important to re recognize that first of all, Kropotkin was a prince. Okay, so we, he's the anarchist formerly known as Prince Peter Kropotkin, right? And he uh, he established his career early on in the military, but as an ethologist. So he was he was you know a geographer. He was a uh, he studied animals and their behavior. Was deeply influenced by not only the so the Narodnik movement in in uh, in Russia, which was a sort of communal self autonomy movement, but also by, you know, the latest scientific advances, trying to understand why animals behave the way that they do. And Darwin was the foil, or rather Thomas Huxley was the foil. So Thomas Huxley argued that nature is red in tooth and claw. And on the basis of their studies of the Galapagos, they said, you know, it was like sort of this Malthusian hell where all these animals packed into these tight spaces and they're just constantly warring with each other. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this is an analogy or it's exactly the same in the human species, they said. Hopkins said, just, I mean, I don't know. I've been, I've been studying the Siberian steppe for, he says, you know, for, for sort of 10 years. I've never seen any of that. Why is that? What, what am I not seeing? And so his studies of animal behavior were in a completely different context, right? And he was influenced by a very different set of ideas about how people cooperate under conditions of scarcity uh, and structures of, uh, uh, you know, where there are no structures of power, for example, but there is intense scarcity. He says that in what you see more often is cooperation and mutual aid. And that what Darwin, Darwin had hinted towards it, but what um, Thomas Huxley had missed was that it's not interspecies conflict that you're seeing. So it's not conflict between lizards in the Galapagos. It's conflict between lizards and other species. And that actually conflict within those species is not violent and deadly. It's only humans that do that, right? So he said, right, so what is going on? Why do humans kill each other in conditions of scarcity, but nobody else does? And he looks and he says, well, actually, if you think about that, when you look at the most successful animal species, the most successful animal species are those that cooperate. Uh, and those that cooperate in vast numbers are the ones that proliferate. And he says, if you look at human society, you see the same. 
And actually what you see is not only is it a, a struggle for survival, but that struggle for, for survival is quintessentially driven by and sustained through mutual aid. And that mutual aid is what is galvanizing communities, enables them to persist over time. And if we miss that important element of evolution, then we can't account for the persistence of human societies. And so he says, right, so what is it that makes us fight each other? And so then he goes back to the Middle Ages and has a look at the way in which, you know, the, the old guild systems of uh, and the city-states of Italy were set up and the autonomy that they had in the Middle Ages. And says that what well, we've lost all of that because suddenly the profit motive takes over. Um, people are expropriated from their from their communal lands. Uh, power and authority is centralized, and all of those things produce crises that it's very difficult for individuals and communities to sustain. So, if you're facing a condition of scarcity in Italy in the eighteen uh, in the in the sixteen hundreds, the fifteen fourteen hundreds, um, you know it's very difficult. You're, you're subsistence most of the time. If you're overtaxed. Or you and you hit a bad year of harvest, you know you're in real trouble. But all of that is exacerbated when you have parasitical overlords who are taking their cuts and offering nothing back to the society. And he says that essentially the the nation state is that writ large, right? So that process then over a period of three hundred years was essentially the consolidation of power to protect the interests of the few who contribute nothing to society, at least in its day to day, uh, you know, reproduction. Uh, and then demand their cut uh, and can produce nothing else. And so the society is always on the back foot. We're always mortgaged to these payments we have to make to those that don't contribute to society. So whether that's landlordism or whether that's, you know, uh, your boss at work, you know, your pay is only ever enough to keep you alive. It's not enough to allow you to take over the factory. Um, it never would be. And so that 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 dynamic has become structural. And that mutual aid that we need becomes stretched and strained. And it's because we're then always under pressure that we find it harder and harder to support each other. But we've always find a way, he says. So revolutionary moments then are those moments where, you know, mutual aid comes to the fore, where, you know, we realize that we've been expropriated, we've been, you know, these parasites are taking all. That's the moment. The French Revolution then is that moment where people understand that power is theirs if they cooperate. Mm. And uh, let's talk about um, anarchism stand towards some some contemporary issues. Let's talk about private property first. Is is anarchism completely against private property? Okay. What is in their stand in general? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you define private property, of course, and it depends how you define mm. anarchism. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are some anarchists who are pro-private property. Uh, there are some who are anti-private property. There are some who say they're anti-private property, but who actually defend it. And there are those who say they're for it. But actually, when you look at the detail, there's no such thing as private property there. I mean, it's complicated. I think I think we need to understand what private property is. If you have it. So private property is essentially something... Where to start? Private property didn't drop out of the sky. It's not a natural right. It's not something that was given to us as a... I mean, throughout the Enlightenment period, the argument was made that actually private property was something that God had given us, particularly the industrious, particularly white people in, in the European Northwest, right? And that private property was the, the gift that they were giving to the rest of the world because you're stabilizing property relations and, you know, you're enforcing them and so on and everybody's going to be happy. This is balmy. You know, nothing dropped out of the sky. The, the private property rights don't enforce themselves. And the dominion that's at the heart of private property is the problem. Now, 
it gets complicated, but cutting a long story short, most anarchists argue that property relations are communal by definition. Okay, so I only respect your property rights because I do. Uh, you're sorry, let me rephrase that. You only have property rights because I respect them. Okay, it may be that I respect your property rights because there's somebody over there holding a gun. I get that. But in principle, it doesn't change the principle that I have to respect that in order for your property rights to persist. And that that is the same across all forms of society. It, fundamentally, property rights are relational, communal, and defined more often than not through an implicit threat of violence. And I should imagine that that would be the same for anarchist society, uh, or whatever it is. Whether you can take violence completely out of societies, I mean, that's perhaps for another podcast, but, but this is... Um, my view is that you know there would be some form of implicit threat of violence that would sustain all property relations but that under an anarchist position property rights do not inherit in the individual so it's not it's not me it's not my property it's our property it's because of that communal recognition of property relations that it's our property so it's only because you can assert it as mine with a gun that it becomes private in that respect i mean it's not empirically it's not private obviously because you need to you need that man to hold the gun so right so this is this if you think about that in the context of the states right so the only reason that the landed bourgeoisie have access to huge amounts of land is because they're willing to pay taxes to the state that will defend those property rights through the use of paramilitary forces the police the army whatever it happens to be that relationship is symbiotic you can't have one without the other so the state wouldn't exist without the bourgeoisie because they need to pay taxes they need to buy the state debt and so on for the state to persist and vice versa. And both of them are parasitical upon the people who have to do the work to make those things create value. So what the anarchists are arguing is that private property in principle doesn't exist. And this is certainly Proudhon's argument. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as privateness. There is only communal relations. The question then is how should we organize them? And if you care about things like fraternity, mutual aid, equality, horizontality, then that would make you an anarchist. And then this implies particular forms of property relations. If, on the other hand, you're a communist, you would argue that everything has to be centralized, that there has to be a principle of, let's say, distributed justice that determines who should get what, when and where. Uh, and that ought to drive the communalization of property. So, for example, in China, there is no such thing as private property as such because the state owns all the land. That doesn't then that means that then they have to come up with principles that determine how you can own and transfer property independently of that state ownership of the land. This is the fudge that they've been trying to deal with for the last sort of 50, 60 years. So the anarchists have a very different approach, right? It's just that we always need to collaboratively collaboratively determine the property relations that we think best suit our needs. So I'm not going to come into your room and take your toothbrush or use it and then put it back in the pot. You know, I'm not going to and, and that's, you know, it's not because it's your property that I wouldn't do that. It's because that's just a really dumb thing to do. And those sorts of rules around property use are implicit. They're implied. They're part of normal practice. You know, they don't take much to enforce. It's the more tricky ones like, you know, should I always leave my front door open? Or, you know, those sorts of things are much harder to determine. But the principle of property is not the best one for resolving those questions best one that the anarchists say for resolving that problem of whether you should open the door or not is a principle of collaborative mutual aid in your neighborhood to ensure that you feel safe with your neighbors or with non-neighbors for that matter. And that is a much more important way of, of addressing questions of, let's say, property infringement and so on than 
resorting always to the idea that your property rights are sacrosanct. And in the book, you also talk about different factors such as globalization in the middle of the 19th century, colonization, industrialization. Uh, so how did these factors help uh, globalize anarchism? How did it become global? Well, I mean, this so the period I'm, you know, the, the period you've just described from sort of from the end of the French Revolution was the period of the consolidation of private property, right? And principally, that was done through the imposition of sovereignty uh, and the colonization of uh, of Africa in particular. So, some really great research showing that the principle of sovereignty that we operate with in Europe was first trialed in Africa, particularly on the western coast of Africa, and was primarily done in order to link authority structures to territory. Now, in Europe, of course, they couldn't do that. The kings couldn't do that because this was an empire. If you link it to territory, you automatically assume that those people have some sort of sovereign jurisdiction. And so what they were doing in Africa was they're saying, you're the king, you rule, rule this piece of land, we trade with you and take the people as slaves to, to America. And that principle of sovereignty then became part and parcel of the, the ethos of, uh, of not only uh, state authority, but also revolutionary national sovereignty. So the concept of sovereignty was always tied to a conception of territory and property. And what the anarchists were saying during that period was, you know, you, you, this is not the road to freedom. Okay, the anarchists were saying, if you, if what you're looking for is autonomy and freedom, having sovereignty and territory uh, is not the answer. And so the anarchists were involved then with, and I've mentioned this already, numerous revolutionary movements that were seeking to navigate that tension between, you know, communal self-determination uh, and property rights, territory, uh, sovereignty, and so on. And that 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 struggle's still ongoing, right? None of that's been resolved. Uh, how about anarchism and industrial relations? How did it become entangled with industri industrial unions? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's it. Yeah, I mean, so the solution at the time was to, you know, bear, bear in mind, it wasn't just about colonization it was also about the emergence of the industrial revolution in the in the 19th century about the development of factories the you know the industrialization of production of distribution and of course of ma massive infrastructural works like railroads the suez canal is a great example because sort of driven by european colonization but the workers there were radical anarchists often so much of the egyptian anarchist movement has its origins in that construction of the of the suez canal and the interesting thing about this is, of course, that the, the, some of the most literate, well-educated people at the time were the industrial working class, but they were also the most mobile. So they would move around the world. And as they moved around the world, they developed these syndicates of, of workers. And that eventually became the anarcho-syndicalist movement. So those small syndicates then decided to join mass movements uh, Sorel has a really great chapter on this where the anarchists join the movement. So there's a whole lot of stuff. Fernand Pelloutier has written about this too. There's so much writing on the way the anarchists transformed industrial relations at the beginning of the 20th century by sort of anarchizing unions, by making them grassroots, by making them um, you know, answerable to their members. And that transformed labor relations because suddenly you know, bosses couldn't rely on union leaders to keep the workers in control or in line, and the anarchists were driving forward radical progressive um, movements like, you know, the fight for the eight-hour day, uh, the fight for the five-day week, or, you know, um, uh, whatever, you know um, gender representation, opening 
labor unions to minority communities or majority communities. Uh, and, you know, these were radical progressive movements that were led within unions. And the anarcho-syndicalist union became the sort of microcosm of the new society. So your union wasn't just the place where, you know, you organized your workplace, your union, because you paid subs, was also going to give you education, provide you with medical insurance, uh, would also pay for movement for all sorts of things. The union provided the lot and it was seen as the sort of the embryo of the new society. And of course, classically in the IWW constitution, it says, you know, building the new in the shell of the old. This is a, a classic statement, sort of anarcho-syndicalist direct action or propaganda by the deed or prefiguration at that period. But of course, it was hugely, hugely challenging for the authorities. And so, you know, what you see all the way through the 1920s up to the Second World War is really an attempt to stamp down and crush those revolutionary syndicalist unions, you know, all the way through to the Spanish Revolution, right, where you had two million anarchists in the CNT. You know, this was yes, it was an existential threat to Europe. It's why Hitler and Mussolini went into it, Spain as quickly as they did, because if you, you know, if if they'd won those two million members in the CNT, you know, this would have radically transformed Europe, you know, 50 years, 100 years before, you know, we're seeing some of that today, but, you know, it still feels pretty authoritarian. But at the time, this was existential. It's why the Americans and the British never got involved in the Spanish Civil War. They would have much rather that Mussolini and, 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 and Franco and Hitler smashed the anarchists and have to deal with that revolutionary movement on their own home soil. Uh, and and you you just mentioned uh, a term that I was about to ask you, uh, anarcho syndicalism, and also there is another term that is closely associated with anarchism, libertarian communism. Can you tell us how anarchism is similar or different from these two, and what do they mean, um, anarcho syndicalism and also libertarian communism? I'd say they're just different tactics, right? So broadly speaking, anarchists need to find ways of living in the absence of a final point of authority. And libertarian communism is just one way of doing that. And anarcho-syndicalism is another. There's not really that much difference between the two. So libertarian communism tends to essentially, they, they, they agree with Marx's class conflict analysis of the motives of history and about the significance and the means of production and the transformation of society. And so you find a much stronger sort of communistic way of understanding the dynamics of history, but they reject Marx's social democratic party political approach to political reform. Um, and libertarian, sorry, anarcho-syndicalists are, should we say, more or less libertarian communists or, or anarchist communists, but they they don't need they don't need the analysis. Okay, so what you I mean one of the one of the ironies of of uh, is, is Lenin said this in What's to Be Done. You see this again. Eric Hobsbawm writes the same thing after the Paris sixty eight uh, revolution or revolution that never happened is that the anarchist movement was inherently spontaneous, right? And you see this in the unions, you see, I mean, you don't need an analysis to know that you're being oppressed and that the route to your freedom is to have self-direction of your own mode of so social reproduction. And so you don't need Marx to tell you that you just get on and do it. And so the, you know, the, you don't need to have read capital to be an anarcho-syndicalist. Whereas libertarian communists perhaps will say, actually, you need a good class conflict analysis to get through that. I mean, I'm not so sure. And neither are some most of the anarcho-syndicalists, I know, even though they've probably all read Marx. And um, so anarchism has become more 
let's say, I don't know, Palm, it has gained more, 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 more traction these days, more recently. But can you tell us how it became, it, it was revived actually during the Cold War, how Cold War helped revive anarchism again? Well, I mean, actually, it's not quite that simple. So during the Cold War, I mean, this was anarchism's sort of the the, the down, the lowest point, if you like. I mean, you know, there were, there were anarchist subcultural movements, don't get me wrong. Okay, so all the way through the Cold War, the emergence of punk music, for example, in the 70s, you know, there was um, anti-authoritarian, um, non-aligned movements that were that were anarchist, and there were a whole bunch of um, Maoist, anarchist, terrorist organizations through the 80s. But it wasn't a mass movement as such um, until, you know, the end of the Cold War and things changed. And the reason for that, of course, is because the Soviet Union collapsed and the Soviet Union had a monopoly that it enforced on uh, on socialist doctrine. Uh, they also funded radical movements that were more in line with the Comintern. Um, and that, in turn, you know, marginalized the anarchist movement. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, that opened up a space for the anarchists once more and so what you find then from the end of the nine, 1980s through to the early 1990s is you know on the one hand you've got this emergence of the sort of new liberal era the end of history where suddenly the world is going to become globalized and in a sort of european way and on the other hand you have this flourishing of this sort of anti-establishment anti-globalization anti-liberal anarchist infused radical left movement that is no longer aligned to the Soviet Union. And, you know, this was a surprise to a lot of people. So it was Seattle 99 is the, is the moment that people often sort of attribute, you know, where suddenly everybody sees the anarchists again. That's not entirely true because they've been around forever. I think the, the really key thing is that, you know, this was anarchist organization. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the rioting or the, you know, the property damage that occurred in Seattle. It was also the sort of the, the massive coalitions that had been organized between labor unions, indigenous movements, you know, food sovereignty movements, um, you know, anti-imperialist movements, anti, uh, you know, there, I mean, there were so many different cohorts and they've been more or less organized on a broadly horizontal uh basis and that really transformed the way in which people thought about the possibilities of radical action and then from 99 through to the early 2010s you know that's when you see a new heyday of anarchist anti-globalization movement you know the anarchists are everywhere essentially and much more prominent in the public imagination than perhaps they were in terms of brute numbers but nevertheless you know what you're seeing is that slowly slowly anarchist ideas become part of the normal language of the left um, you know, it's much more common these days that you'll be talking about participation, participatory modes of politics, horizontality, um, you know, consensus, all of these sorts of things were anathema to party politics, to the Politburo, to the Comintern analysis and practice of revolutionary politics. But now it is much more part of what we take for granted in terms of how people should be organizing, you know, in inviting as many views as possible, trying to find consensus, you know. Um, trying to undermine hierarchies so that people have an opportunity to have a voice. That's what, you know, that's what's behind all sorts of struggles for for recognition in contemporary politics worldwide. And much of that has a, a much more anarchist ethos than it does um, a more conventional, let's say, liberal or communist one. And um, anarchism seems to be everywhere, even without us realizing it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But can you talk about anarchism in popular culture earlier? You mentioned the movie V for Vendetta. Sure. Can you in general talk about elements of anarchism in popular culture and why they are so omnipotent and everywhere? Yeah, I mean, it's just everywhere, isn't it? I mean, that's the... I mean, it's hard to recognize it if you're not looking for it, right? But consider, for example, I mean, if you go to the end of the credits of the Matrix movie, okay, the first one, the second one, and the third, you will see that the production company that the Wachowskis set up to produce those movies was called Narcos Productions, okay? Now, if you think about the the, the legacy, so the Matrix isn't, you know, it wasn't invented out of nowhere, you know, it has echoes in uh, The Ghost in the Shell, Japanese anime, uh, also written by an anarchist. You also see this as echoes from surrealism. This is also echoes from the sort of radical uh, science fiction of people like Ursula Le Guin, but also further back and more recently, people like Ian M. Banks. You know, you see the anarchist ethos within not just those movies, but also within music. Think, you know, you don't even have to think about punk. I mean, you know, John Cage is one of the most famous American composers of the 20th century, was most definitely an anarchist. And you think about then, you know, it's, God, I just get overwhelmed by how much of modern culture seems to be anarchist influenced. And it's really striking that we don't see it that way. And it's often the case that the people that produce this sort of material don't self-identify as anarchists, at least not openly. Uh, uh, And yet they infuse their works with these sort of libertarian, anti-authoritarian ethos that is part and parcel of what we would call maybe a liberal society. But the but the the politics of it is so much stronger if you dig in and have a look at where where they're directing their anger in the beef of vendetta, of course. You know, that came out during the war on terror. And you can see how terrorism and the use of state terror to suppress populations, you know, it was a it originally this was written during the poll tax riots in the UK in the 1980s. But but as it was rewritten and you know, broadcasting during the war on terror, get a very different sense of what the power dynamics are in society and how they're used to suppress us. And, you know, it's written by an anarchist. It's not particularly, I mean, you can't tell it's an anarchist unless I can't remember if V actually calls himself an anarchist, but, you know, it, it's not just there. I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm now, I was overwhelmed by the details a second ago. Now I've gone completely blank. But I, I, I challenge anyone that's listening to this to have a think. And I bet you, within a minute, you've come up with other anarchist popular culture. Chumbawamba, all right? Uh, top thumping. I get knocked out and I get up again. I, they, they're, they're an anarchist band, okay? And it's one of the, you know, highest selling songs of the 90s. It's like a, you know, it's an anthem, more or less. I mean, you know, I could, I could go on. But anyway, I'll leave it to your listeners to have a think about it. But think about anarchism and art. Anarchism in education, it's transformed education, the way we think about, you know, student-centered learning. I mean, that's anathema to most centralized learning, thinking that students can actually direct their own learning. You know, this is normal practice in most decent schools. Uh, and that's what, you know, that's broadly an anarchist position that's been around since William Godwin in the uh, in the 1780s. Um, let me just ask you one final question, because I know we're pressed for time. Very briefly, if you could just tell us about anarchist alternative to Issues such as privatization or nationalism of public mm. good and services. Mm. Yeah. So the, the the very short introduction has four chapters that kind of deal with, you know, how do anarchists deal with public goods? Well, how do they provide law and order? How do anarchists think about education, about the you know, the regulation of work uh, and health as well? And one of the key things, I suppose the key message is that, you know, it doesn't have to be nationalization or pro- 
privatization. There is another way of thinking about this. You can think about um, organizing public goods through communal self-organization. And in fact, most of the world is currently organized in that way. So some of the most recent research by a guy called Thomas Risser and his wife, Tanya Burtzel, they demonstrated that something like, let's say, 80% of the people on this planet exist without you know, a barbarian state, somebody who can use legitimate force to govern the distribution of goods or to regulate the, the distribution of public utilities. Most people on the planet don't have any of those things, and yet they get by. So Eleanor Ostrom's written a lot about this. She won a Nobel Prize or the fake Nobel in economics for her work on this. You know, it, the anarchists really are trying to systematize a way of thinking that is implicit in all non-state activities throughout human history. So wherever there's not been a final point of authority, in one small a sense, that is anarchistic. So whether that's, you know, collecting dustbins, whether that is, you know, providing health, um, uh, providing health insurance or uh, communal, communal health centers, you know, you don't need a state to do those things. And what we're, the anarchists argue, is that we're giving up our autonomy to the state and allowing the state to dominate, or private property for that matter, if we privatize those, those, those public goods. We are essentially divesting ourselves in the autonomy we need in order to make the, the world that we want to see. And so for e in each of those areas, anarchists argue that you know, deploying principles of mutual aid, prefiguration, equality, horizontality, all of those things bring a form of community that enables us to work together better to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves in ways that are less damaging to the environment because it's um, small scale, less damaging to the environment because it's not high intensive use of uh, fossil fuels in order to fuel consumerist societies and so on and so forth. You know, I, I mean, I could go on forever, but I'd encourage you to read the book instead, perhaps. Yeah, and it's a very, very easy and readable book, uh, and has a great list of uh, other books at the end that you know, that that our listeners can follow up. Um, Professor Alex Pritchett, thank you very much for your time and this wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great to talk to you. Cheers.